Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Danveer Singh Bra, who's a lecturer in Black British History at the University of Leeds. We'll be talking about his book, Tech Life, Ghettoville, Esky, The Sonic Ecologies of Black Music in the Early 21st Century, which was published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Danveer. Uh, thanks for having me, Gummo. Glad to be on. So I guess, could we start with you telling us a little bit about your academic and professional background? I, I'm, a, I'm a regular listener and subscriber to various new books, new networks, uh, channels. And um, this question always throws me a bit because it feels like you're in a job interview. And I, t- I don't know how to how to answer it without um, kind of giving a, a that sort of, you know, answer where you try and uh, convey yourself to be a, an, an, a really competent and adequate professional. But um, I guess one way into that question would to say that there are a set of kind of concerns, questions, commitments, obsessions that that kind of shape a lot of the research that I'm involved in and try to produce. One would be the, I guess you could call it the the political aesthetics of of Black diasporic music stretching from, I guess, the the post-war period to the present. And Usually the way I, I, I enter the, that, that is through Black diasporic popular music in, in North America, Britain and the Caribbean. Another way into the kind of set of research agendas that I'm, that I'm trying to take up is, is the relationship between um, the question of race in, in critical and cultural, I guess the question of race and in intellectual activity and intellectual politics. Um, and then thirdly, um, I'd say it's a, a, a broader concern with the, the, the cultural politics of race. Um, so the intersection of race and cultural studies. So they're the main things that, um, that kind of determine the parameters of, of the research I do. But in generally, it's, it's kind of following various obsessions, various interests around a set of questions um, uh, about how people have sought to respond to and change the, the, the situations in which they find themselves and how they res- respond to and change those situations aesthetically, culturally, um, and paying attention to those practices, those manifestations. And I mean, those questions all really animate much of this book. But I guess, could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to write this book specifically and the, the musics that you choose here? The book was a kind of... Uh, an accident, really. You could say it's a kind of an organisation of an accident. Um, I fell into it in many ways. The the work I'd done as a PhD was really focused on trying to think about the aesthetics and politics of sound in the context of uh, black radicalism in the US during the 60s. So, um, you know, I tried to put together these comparative and comparative analyses of of, of particular moments of, of kind of sonic intensity that uh, appear in the spheres of music or politics um, broadly conceived. So like James Brown and Miri Baraka, um, 
Martin Luther King and, and Sam Cooke and, and Motown and the and uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. But all the all the while when I was when I was working on that material in my we call my my non-formal research uh, life, I was you know just pursuing my my own interests and obsessions and my own um, desires for uh, um, electronic music, uh, various forms of electronic dance music. Uh, that have been there since I was a teenager. And really, I guess, looking on it retrospectively in the PhD, I worked out, I was working out a set of methods for trying to think about how to think about music um, in, a, in different ways, um, in ways that I, I found kind of satisfying. And once I finished the PhD, I guess, um, as a result of the regularity of, of, of you know, going to dances, listening to music, um, talking about it continuously with friends that I started to, to put together some notes, some ideas, uh, particularly on footwork and grime. And the book just kind of grew and developed from there. And I pretty much decided quite quickly that I didn't want to, to, to go for a PhD to book conversion path because I'd kind of finished with that, that, that project in the, in the PhD stage. Um, I like to try and keep myself, uh, keep a kind of element of freshness to to anything I'm doing. So um, the book really just grew out of there. A f- uh, several years of engaging with with the music of the, the artists that I, and the the styles that I focus on in that book: um, footwork, grime, and actress. And then, as I oh. s- say at the end of the book, the book could have taken many manifestations, alternative manifestations, depending on um, the choices I made about what would be in what would end up in the final version of the book. What I decided once the book started to appear and come into view is that there was something about uh, the questions of urbanism and space that were unifying these the particular um, artists and styles that I focus on in the book. Um, so I thought, let's just stick with that. That's It's got a level of coherency um, to it. It looks like it's pre-planned. It's been thought through, <laughs> um, even though it's kind of after the fact. So let's let's go with that and uh, work with that. And yeah, that's really where the book kind of came out of. A really a kind of formalization of a, of a, a formalization intensification of a kind of uh, a long period of leisure activity, I guess. And so, as you say, the, the three musics you look at are grime, footwork, and the music of the producer, actress. And the book opens with this fantastic little portrait where you describe some of the sonic characteristics of one specific track from each of those three. Um, for listeners who might not be aware, could you maybe lay out some of the distinctive sonic features of the three musics? Yeah. Um, wow, that's because I, I haven't even looked at the book really since <laughs> um, I handed it over to the publishers. And I haven't gone back to that music so much, apart from the, the launch. I guess footwork is the one mistake often made about footwork is that it's thought to be music that is very fast but instead it's intense and there's a difference between speed uh, and intensity um, and its intensity comes from actually the uh, the the way it presses together lots of contrasting elements um, one would be this this kind of uh, this rapid um, snare drum pattern uh, which seems, which is the where the, the impression of its speed comes from, um, which moves a, a, a high velocity. But then that's that's combined usually in foot with with two other elements. The other is this kind of uh, sharp punching kind of bassline that comes underneath the kind of that draws on the genealogies of of Chicago house. And the third is usually some sort of sample, um, whether it's from contemporary R and B. It could be some element of, of kind of 70s, even 60s soul, or it could be uh, um, a sample rip from a particular hip-hop track. Um, and then maybe there's some, often actually there's a fourth element in footwork, which is the presence of, the, of a producer uh, usually kind of verbalising over the uh, in, in snippets over the top of a track. Um, with grime, God, yeah, grime, that's a, that's a really tough one. Grime is like sharp, um, highly synthetic, um, has very high rates of propulsion. It feels like both like a kind of a kind of expulsion of air, release of pressure, 
Uh, but also it sounds like kind of uh, uh, like kind of bits of metal grinding up against each other. The gr- there's a very different styles of grime um, under the grime umbrella, but there tends to be um, staccato bass drums. Often, sometimes in grime tracks, there aren't much in the isn't much in the way of bass activity. But really, the point of grime or the way that grime functions is as a means to stimulate performances from MCs. So what you've got is a is a very complex synthetic sharp soundscape in which MCs can therefore test their skills. So rather than providing a bedrock or a, a background for an MC's skills, it's almost often as if the MC as MC as much as battling with each other are battling with the the soundscape of um, uh, of the production with actresses music. Well, that's that's the root. That's probably the toughest one because the under the actress banner he has a. Uh, um, a wide range of kind of, I guess you call it production uh, guises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'd say the, one of the ways to describe actresses is, is something like a combination of Chicago house, New Jack swing, and Detroit techno, but as if you were listening to it through uh, in the in the smoking area of a club. So you're listening to it at a kind of, I wouldn't call it a distance, but a level of kind of um, filter and um abstraction um and it's very much as if he's looking down over the top of the music and 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 playing and toying with bits um bits of it um i would say with actress but i guess one of the differences and one of the common uh, discussions i've had as a result of the book is is i would say is the difference between seeing actress dj and and hearing his productions because his productions are often present a very intricate um uh, style of, of of music, but if you see him DJ, often the few occasions I've seen him DJ, he has an extremely intense, distorted um, pr- approach to DJing, which I think gives you a different perspective on on what he's doing on record. I, I suppose that distinction between production and the performance of a production is also quite key in all of these musics that you look at um which i guess we'll come to in a little bit so before we move into the kind of the meat of the book i thought it might be a good idea to ask you about two concepts that um recur throughout the book which is the idea of sonic ecology and phonomateriality so what do these terms mean and could you maybe talk a little bit about the theoretical underpinnings of the concepts and the body of literature the book is situating itself within yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of wary of trying to present the book as a kind of invention of new concepts. Um, I think that kind of drive for novelty is is quite dangerous in in academic or intellectual life at present. Often, what you get in publishing, I think, is a trademark in the con- attempt to trademark concepts rather than publish books. Um, and I tend to prefer to work on the idea that no one's no one arrives at anything kind of uh, purely originally. You know, that you've you've borrowed things and you've adapted them. So the idea of sonic ecology is really borrowed from two or three kind of uh, places. Um, one obvious place would be it appears in Steve Goodman's book uh, Sonic Warfare, and one of the kind of uh, one of the regular experiences uh which 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 uh fed into the the thinking around the book was um you know going to the several hyperdub parties that that um Steve was running as part of his label that he um, um and any DJs under the, the the name code 9 but also you can see something like psych ecology um appear in in um under different names appear in uh, the writing and thinking of Catherine McKittrick and Abdul Malik Simone, who are both geographers but seem to seem to, to think their approach to geography and particularly urbanism through the through the the manifestations of, of various types of black diasporic music. So that's really where sonic ecology is coming from. Um, and f- and phonomateriality is really just is again is a is a kind of borrowing and adaptation from um, uh, a term that. Um, Fred Moten uses at the start of In the Break. Um, and that if you, once you identify it there, you kind of spot it in several places. Um, this, in a way, what I think phonomateriality allows for or is a way to pay attention to um, 
music as organized sound um, and the aesthetics of that organized sound without um, having to uh, go through um, the, 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 the particular mechanics and techniques of, of uh, musicology, uh, which I'm not trained in, so I wouldn't be able to, uh, but also as a way of um, avoiding what, you know, in some instances is often the, the, the trap of cultural studies, which a cultural studies approach to music, which tends to really leave the actual sonic material aside um, in, its, in its analyses. Um, so yeah, that's once you you spot it front of materiality, it kind of appears everywhere in Baraka, in Gilroy, in Alexander Wahile, Richard Aiton, um, you know, obviously in, in McKittrick, who I just mentioned, you know, it appears almost anywhere and everywhere in the writing of Greg Tate, you know, um, it's it's all over the place uh, once you once you identify it as such or give it a particular name. It's always been there. It's just a name for a thing that's that's always been in operation. I'd say. And, and that connection of the contents of the sound to the social and to the production of the social and the spatial is obviously very central in all, all those authors that you cite and, and you know again animates much of the book itself, I think. So then in chapter one, um, you kind of lay some groundwork for your three case studies by discussing the earlier emergence of black electronic dance music, specifically focusing on house techno and jungle. But you're, you're clear that you're not just trying to draw a kind of straight line connecting these earlier forms to footwork, grime and actress. Instead, you're making a much more subtle point here about what you call the changing same of black electronic dance music, obviously from uh, from Baraka. Um can you explain that phrase and how it relates to what jungle house and techno can show us about the entanglement of music, race, class, and territory at the end of the 20th century? Yeah. Um, I mean, the changing same is, yeah, it's a term that, um, first appears in Baraka and it's in, it's in Baraka's usage. It's a, it's a very kind of, uh, potent and productive way to think to, to really to him to give a name for what he thinks of as the the really the the metaphysical project of of black diasporic music, which is that um, a kind of complication of of what could be understood as the modernist drive towards the new or new horizons. Um, and Baraka says, well, the instance well, in the case of black diasporic music, you get this this complicate complication disruption of that modernist impulse by the fact that you get a pushing towards a, a constant push to, to develop new forms of the music. But what's what happens in that push towards new forms is that some fragments of the past are always remain, are always reworked. Um, and therefore you get this, this, this idea of the changing same of black music, um, that, that nothing is a, ever, ever a complete break uh, from the past. That something of um, um, whether it's historical memory or musical memory is always uh, carried over um and 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 readapted um and that's as again as you as you pointed out that's not to say there are strict genealogies it's about how you listen um and and how you pay attention to that changing same and yeah the 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 relationship between jungle house and techno and then um footwork grime and the actresses music is yeah it's not it's not i don't i'm not as you quite as you point out i'm not looking to to, to develop, to say there's a strict line of, of transference here. It's more to do with uh, the sets of conditions in which they emerge that are comparable, uh, often because often they're in the same place, but also it's their approach to materials, whether those are musical materials or what we call social materials. There seems to be, it's more of a kind of structural approach, I'd say. Um, there seems to be something structural in the way that uh, you could say that Chicago uh, uh, house um techno and jungle as you could you could call them the the, the formative moments in of contemporary dance music production um the the uh, a, a possible set of starting points that in those starting points they they set up some terms ways of working that i think if you understand those you can you can therefore start to uh, see how those ways of working those structural conditions are played out and reworked and adapted in contemporary situations in current situation and in different settings as well and i think having that kind of that scene setting makes makes so much sense for then kind of going into the the subsequent music so you build on this and moving into the following chapter you talk about trying to theorize um the blackness of 
black electronic music. Again, I know we've done a bit of kind of defining terms, but it feels quite important to unpack what blackness means in the sense that you're using it here and then throughout the book. In a way, that's part of the question. That's the the um, question that stimulates the project and is ultimately left answered, unanswered, uh, because it's part of that changing same dynamic. But if yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say in that chapter is black music is um, black music has to be thought through its historical conditions of production, and those historical conditions of production would be the you know the facts of of slavery and colonization as the the defining experiences for the exist the existence of that music, um, but also that the music as a let's say um, a social and philosophical endeavor is trying to rethink and constantly change and break, make bids for freedom out of that. And that's where something you might get something like the question of blackness appear, um, a, a pop up in in black music. That I don't. Th- the question of blackness of black music is um, a product of processes of racialization, violent processes of racialization, but it's not reducible to them. And I think that's what I'm trying to to um, um, set up in that chapter, saying that actually that that, that um, this has been an ongoing debate, an ongoing set of ideas at work in black diasporic intellectual practice. And that actually the the thinkers who have paid closest attention to the music have been trying to tap into and unpack this question. Um, and those debates are are unstable. They're not. There's not a clear set of kind of camps. Those questions aren't resolved in any particular way. But they seem to be what keeps keeps the the thinking about the music going as well as the music itself um i would suggest and actually the the, the a lot of the people that are, whose ideas i kind of rip and borrow from would i think suggest the same building on that i, I think one really interesting concept that comes through there is about a, a drive toward unrecognizability in black musical experimentation and that felt really significant um the way that you you were using it there. So what's that doing as a concept and how does it maybe call into question ideas of black music as being straightforwardly representational or realist? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, again, that's the, that's the, uh, that was actually what attracted me to these particular um, musical forms to write about uh, in terms of styles or projects to write about and develop for the purposes of a book. And actually, as as uh, it tends to be, the thing that draws me towards um, musical forms or aesthetic projects in general that um, that attempt to produce a, a, an effect or a type of unrecognizability, yet still making a claim on a set of conditions. So it's I think it's undeniable that footwork is black music, right? There are a set of quite obvious features and factors which say, okay, yeah, no, you could say concretely it's black music, but what it's doing is it's rendering our acceptable ideas or historically constituted ideas of what what black music is or isn't, it's rendering them unstable. And I think that's what makes these musics exciting. Um, But if you start to listen closely, listen uh, listen, um, um, attentively, and you listen to what the artists are telling you, or not telling me in this instance, but um, what, what they say about their own music practice is that there is something of the past, um, is something of a kind of history, um, historical knowledge, historical attitude buried in there. Um, you just have to have to listen out for it. And with, I think they're, they're kind of challenging the way we listen, the way we listen as, um, um, and the way we listen, the way we historicize, um, and the way we categorize. So that's, yeah, I think that's certainly the, the case with footwork. Um, often the early reception of it, particularly in the UK, was, was you know, this is this music sounds like, in a, in a very positive sense, out there, you know, kind of, it's really, um, I don't know how best to describe it, but um, it's frenetic, it's, it sounds almost unlistenable. But as people start to write and think about it more and start to speak to the artist more, they can start to, they can begin to situate what it's doing and where it's coming from. Exactly the same goes with grime. When people first heard grime, it was like this kind of, this kind of nuclear explosion had gone off. Um, and it was quite, in a very real sense, a leap. Taking a set of kind of 
musical styles approaches that had been developing over a number of years and, and and building for a number of years and it suddenly takes them and flips everything and and and, and takes a sharp turn a, a kind of handbrake turn in another direction and it seems like everything has been left previously has been left behind but again if you listen closely you can hear what you can hear what's been adapted uh, which not to say they're they're referencing the past but you can hear traces of what's been adapted I think actually that's at the uh, at the heart of Actresses Project from the outset. This this attempt to uh, render the familiar um, strange or render the familiar unrecognizable, uh, or at least appear to to kind of um, I guess in some sense ch- the producer challenging themselves, but also challenging the listener, the dancer um, to 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 listen differently. You touched on it there in passing about you so saying you know not not you actually speaking to the artist and so that that feels like quite a conscious kind of i guess methodological choice that you despite having you know lots of as you're saying experience of going to going to these shows going to these dances you've quite explicitly chosen not to do interviews or not to do ethnography really could you maybe expand on your kind of choice of approach for this and and basing it much more in a kind of yeah critical listening and then theoretical approach yeah um i guess i'm trying to um treat the materials produced by these artists as artworks and that's the 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 first approach i take to them um and then everything kind of follows from there and it poses challenges because you know at best you might have something like an album in the case of footwork possibly in grime obviously in the case in actresses in, in actresses output you have a lot of albums or ep works but really, especially in footwork and grime, you have a lot of unstable ephemeral material. So how do you treat this as an artistic practice um, and um, think about its aesthetics without having something stable to, to fix upon? And that actually, I think, is what draws me towards treating them as artworks. And in that sense, I would say... It, I'm treating them as artworks because, to me, they're the evidence of they're singular. They're singular instances of of collectivized intellectual activity. I, you know, there's great value. There would there probably would have been great value in going to speak to grime MCs, going to speak with actress, um, or speak with you know Richard and Spin. Um, on other occasions, I have, but not as a result of this this project. It's just you know happens to be a chance meeting them just talking to them or maybe in the kind of, you know, in the, at the bar of a club or something like that. But it's not been a kind of concerted uh, research endeavor. But really to say, well, they're making the music and they're making it for a reason to, in one sense, in a, uh, to speak to the wider world. So let's listen to the music and try and unpack what it is you, they're, they're trying to say. Um, and... Uh, they're using the music as their primary means of communication and expression. So why not pay close attention to what they're doing in the music um, and trying to kind of unpack that uh, as best you can. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a gambit. It's not, I'm not making a set of indisputable claims. It's a, it's an argument. It's a, it's a set of, there are a set of propositions, but it's more about, well, let's take this seriously as a, as intellectual activity. And if you do, what, what, what difference might that open up in terms of thinking about this musical, um, these musical projects, rather than uh, relying on what tends to be the stat—not not tends to be, but often can be the approach to um, black musical forms, particularly you know urban musical forms—to go and speak to the artist as a as a kind of um, it kind of send, lends an assurance of authenticity. Which again, that if you go back to the unrecognizability thesis, is um, is not really. I'm, I'm not looking for that sort of anchor. You know, if an artist wants to disagree with what I've written, that's fine. You know, that's cool. Um, it's not a problem. I mean, like, um, I'd be happy that they read it, you know. <laughs> I'd just be happy that they read it. Uh, if they want to disagree, that's totally fine. It's not an issue. Cool. Well, um, maybe you can anticipate some emails after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, turning to your analysis of footwork, could you explain the relationship between dancers and producers in making this music and why this matters for your kind of theoretical position? Yeah, um, well, what happens with footwork is, you know, an acute, a very acute and uh, compressed manifestation of something that had always been existence in existence in Chicago House, or seems to have been existence from Chicago House from very early on. 
um, and the various guises that Chicago House went through from the 80s onwards is this tendency towards coordinated competitive dancing. Uh, particularly once you get to Ghetto House, uh, there is some element of, of organized dancing and competitive dancing between groups of people in club spaces from, you know, uh, again, the, 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 the bits of history that I put together, the, the more detailed histories of Chicago House, the oral histories uh, that you can put together. But what happens with footwork is two things. One, um, the dance battle moves out of the club and goes into the into either the open air of uh, uh, of the ghettoized area of Chicago, or in particular social spaces like kind of uh, community centres or or school gyms or um, just abandoned buildings or something along those lines. And secondly, what starts to happen uh, from what I was able to, to piece together from, from about the, the genealogy of footwork is that the, as a result of these kind of specialized dance battles that take place, the dancers start to make a, make a demand upon producers to have increasingly complex uh, rhythms to, to dance to, to, to in order to test their dancing capacities. I think what this this intensification of, of what had been in existence for a long time as an informal, I guess, practice in Chicago, um, what it leads to is this thing we call footwork, whereby the dancers and producers seem to be making the music together in a very direct, overt way. Um, whereas, you know, the, you could argue the condition of all uh, electronic dance music or dance music um, is involves some exchange between dancers and producers because you know producers are testing out materials at dances they see how dancers respond um, if there isn't that much of a positive response they'll go away and rework it or try something else uh, um, um, and, and that's the way it tends to it tends to operate you know across the board no matter which which kind of genre or style you're looking at but in Chicago that gets that gets really kind of um, put together in a, in a in a in a very particular way in a very overt way and you it's very difficult therefore to to hear to listen to footwork without in a way hearing the dancers movements right it's it's a kind of got a got a a cross media um it's kind of got a, an element of bleed across across media uh, built into into footwork you've got the 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 visual element the choreographic element of the dancers movements and then you've got they're kind of being folded in and embedded into the, the the sonic palette of the music and vice versa that it's it's it becomes almost indivisible and i suppose a question that came to mind when i was thinking about this because I, I remember first coming across footwork watching kind of youtube videos that showed the dancing and the music at once and they felt you know so inseparable as you talk about um but since then uh, as you kind of already mentioned you know footwork's had quite a lot of uptake in uh, in certain kind of european circles and I, I know that quite a lot of footwork djs often end up on the bills of european kind of avant-garde festivals or whatever what happens to a music that's so intensely you know related to a certain space and a certain set of movements and interactions when it moves into like the european concert hall yeah i mean that's that's a that's been a long that's been a question that's been for a long time on for various underground folk popular music forms right um but in this is, I mean, someone who I find really interesting on this is DJ Spin. He's he's often he's quite been overt about it. He says that look, the that what he produces and plays, uh, particularly him and Richard when they were working together before Richard passed, what they play for the European audience was um, this hybrid version of of footwork that they were adapting and developing that they felt would uh, lend itself to club spaces where people will first, because the first way in which footwork entered uh, Europe was through club nights um, that would play to Europe, uh, the, the palettes and ears of um, bodies of European dancers in Europe. Um, and that's, that's a kind of very broad term because you've got, you know, the type of um, social ecology of dancing in, in the UK is going to be different to Berlin or Italy or whatever, depending on the, the histories of electronic music in those particular countries. Um, so they were already attuned to that, but also you know there's a there's the just the real everyday basic element as they're working musicians, you know, and you go where the work is, 
and they were able to sustain themselves by um, um, tapping into this 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 um, energy for what they were doing in in you know um, firstly clubs in Europe and then as you as you pointed out like various kind of um, arts festivals in across you know European cities. Yeah, one argument you could make is that there's there's been an element of dilution. Um, I guess that's fair, but then there's also, you know, going back to the changing same argument that that music's constantly developing, and you perhaps wouldn't have, you know, the kind of really fascinating deviations from a central footwork palette that you get in the like in producers such as Jay Lynn, or, or kind of you know the albums that RP Boo's been putting out. So I think it's, you know, it's a. I don't think it's anything to kind of. I don't think you need to again kind of have some claim over authenticity that one type, one instance of footwork is more authentic than the other. It's developed the way it has, and we wouldn't be encountering it. We wouldn't be here talking about it if it hadn't been able to. They hadn't been, you know, the, the musicians themselves, the producers themselves, hadn't been thinking, right? So there's this interest in, you know, these club nights in London. Um, what is it they're listening to there? What is it they're attuned to there? And how can we? present our music in a way which meets them and welcomes them in to, to footwork, you know. And I think that's something that actually to, I would actually applaud. Is you, you also highlight the widespread spread use of the term tech with a K by those involved in making the music. What for you is the significance of this term and what does it tell us about the blackness of footwork? To me, that's, that's the, the, the invention and use of this term tech is that collectivized social intellectual activity at work. That's the evidence of it. It's a it's a kind of um, uh, organic intellectual activity, you know, to use a to use a, um, a more accepted term um, at work. It's them not only making their music, but them thinking about, or well, what is what are the particular qualities of our music, and what is it we want it to? How do we want to convey it to the world? And it seems to because you know it's it's tech. It's not it's not, it's not so much the term tech in and of itself. The way the term tech is used in conjunction with other terms combined with other words used as part of the invention of other neologisms. So architecture, tech life, technician. Um, and that seems to, those terms in themselves seem to imply something of the, the fact they see themselves as, in a way, a kind of post-industrial laborers. The idea of being a technician of having a craft uh, but it's tech with a K, so it has this, this, this I guess, this, this kind of post-industrial feel to it uh this this speculative feel to it um but it's also very much of a place right it's it's saying we're built not only building music but we seem to be trying to build place or build an idea of place in the music um um and yes i think the the term tech is i guess in a way it's 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 telling you something about the way race is being made and refused and in the in the particular context in which that music is being made yeah that's the, the making and refusal that's a really nice way of putting it i think um and could you explain what you see as some of the issues with urban sociology with regard to black life in chicago and the way that footwork kind of enacts a critique of theories of urban decay and ghettoization um yeah that was <laughs> yeah that was the, the 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 bit of the chapter that was um I wouldn't say toughest, but it was just kind of like uh, having to delve into a set of debates that I had a sense that were there, but I hadn't realised how extensive they were and how deep they were. And there was a stage in which, you know, I kind of go, well, how deep, like, this is an ongoing debate in in, in the field of urban sociology. Two, uh, two kind of debates in the field of urban sociology. One is, how do you define the urban? I guess I would put it in th- and make it three debates. It seems to me anyway. One, how you define the urban. Two, how do you define the ghetto? And three, how come Chicago seems to be the template for all of this thinking about the urban and the ghetto? Um, or at least the starting point for it. And there's no way in which, you know, I would I would say that the 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 summary and the, the my the entry I have into those debates is is definitive. Um, and I'm sure people who have a much deeper schooling in these debates will be able to point out, you know, the kind of flaws in my argument. But it's built on a basic premise. There seemed to be, a, a from the materials that I'd read and kind of surveyed, there seemed to be a claim that, OK, what starts to happen in the 1990s is you get the development of a certain type of uh, life in, in urban environments in Chicago as emblematic of urban environments across America 
whereby there's a there's a kind of there's a kind of like structural desolation that comes into play you know um uh, due to the the the, aban- uh, the abandonment of these areas by the state um the the mo- the kind of the movement of a, of a black bourgeoisie out of uh, um, ghettoized areas the the wider structural shifts in capital that produces this element of a kind of what the, seems to be the tendency to think of these er- uh, places as as desolated and you know in need of some sort of implication being that needs some sort of rescuing or help and i you can kind of in some sense you can kind of see where the the they're coming from but at the same at the same time then you go oh well if you take that as if you accept that argument then how do you explain the fact that at the very same time let's say in chicago these claims are being made there's this huge flourishing of ghetto house and the development of what was cut as known in in amongst house fans as the one of the Motowns of Chicago uh, ghetto house, the the Dance Mania label. Now, how is this flourishing of cultural activity, of expressive sonic activity? How do those two things sit together? And all I was trying to do in that section is say, well, how do we how do we deal with this? Um, because you know um, these two things don't seem to cohere. How can you have on one side this, this set of claims that there's been a destruction of a certain type of uh, a certain vision, a certain type of black social life in Chicago. Um, at the same time, there's this, this rapid flourishing of musical activity. Um, how do those sit together? Um, and yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to, the question I was trying to pose, is that if you're saying that the term is from, I think it's from Loic Quaquant, that uh, uh, the, 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 the Chicago ghetto is now nothing but a warehouse for discarded material. I, think I might be misremembering that. You're like, well, if it is, then where's footwork coming from? And perhaps that tells us about something about, you know, what we think of as a warehouse, what we think of as discarded material. That there's, you know, materials and peoples we might think of as waste or wasted um, or desolate might have something going on there which we're not paying attention to, that we're not attuned to. Yeah, totally. I suppose the warehouse in particular there being quite specific. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given its relevance. Yeah, the big so, light bulb moment, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then moving on to chapter four, where you discuss the actress's music, you're particularly attentive to his relationship to kind of abstraction and the everyday and how this work is like often quite a long way removed from, say, that's the quite sci-fi inflicted speculation of like techno. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the productive tension you identify between abstraction and the kind of firm grounding in the immediate environment that you see in Ghettoville and in actress's work? The stuff on actress. I mean, I did. I I really wanted to make sure it it was it stayed in there. I was in discussions with editors. There was a feeling often that well, the actress chapter is a kind of anomaly uh, because, firstly, it's focused on on a singular artist and built around a singular album. But secondly, that that because of the particular overtly, you could call in some sense, it's not the right term because I think this is is a problematic term. But let's say the. Uh, for want of a better term, the, the overtly cerebral presentation of actresses' music that um, it doesn't seem to sit with, um, you know, the 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 idea or the preconceived idea of what grime and tech life are doing. But what I what I enjoyed about what I found productive about actresses' music and what I liked about it in terms of its unrecognizability is that it was he was he was clearly drawing upon a set of ideas or attitudes, a set of sensibilities in, in I, I think he'd identified a strain uh, or a, a certain kind of sensibility or strain in, in the, the musical forms that he was attracted to. And he'd pulled that out and, and made them into, a, into his own type of sound. And that would be this tendency towards abstraction that he hears in, in Chicago House, New Jack Swing, obviously Prince um, and Detroit Techno. But what he doesn't try and do is make these um, retro projects, right? He doesn't try to say, well, how do I make my music sound like this music from the past that I'm influenced by? How do I use the impulses of that music, this this strain of abstraction that I've identified, but make something that's, that's speaking to what it is that I want to express and say about our present? And that's where I've hit, I kind of try to carve out this idea because the in the writing about Detroit techno in particular, you know, there's a now accepted um, narrative which you know the artists put forward themselves, which is Detroit techno, and particularly the techno of the 80s and 90s, was 
and this is a very broad sweeping claim, but it's largely built upon using the experience of alienation to tap into something of a kind of extraterrestrial, extra-human, experience, uh, extra-human uh, dynamic, or extra-human, extraterrestrial possibilities in, in Black diasporic music. And so, you know, you've got that famous line from Juan Atkins that he says, well, what we're trying to do is, is land a UFO on a record, right? Um, and that's a really brilliant and neat way of, of, of defining uh, the Detroit Techno Project because it draws upon, you know, you, you've got all the allusions to science fiction cinema, music, in some sense, the absurd, the, the speculative, all at work there, right? But you can definitely hear actresses using the, Im- abs- the impulses towards abstraction and alienation in those musics but he's not interested in that kind of particular sci-fi dynamic. And so what I was trying to say is think about is what is it that he's able to do and what is it that he's done here that takes the, again, the kind of something like the structural elements of those musics, but reformulates them, turns them into something new. And yeah, if you get over was the album, which, which exemplified that for me, because he was very determinedly saying that it was about walking around a place, a particular environment and a very specified environment. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to use that as, again, a kind of productive tension to, to say, well, it is, in some sense, has a relation to Detroit techno, but you can't reduce it to an understanding of, of the kind of classic Detroit sound and the classic Detroit ethos. He's doing something very different. Here. And I and I tried to use that as a, as, a, as a kind of animating force in the chapter to go, well, it is this, but it's not quite that. And how do we pay attention to what it is the music, his music saying and also what he's saying because he's, is quite forthcoming in putting forward kind of interpretations of his own music. So if we pay attention to what he's saying, how do we remain faithful to that and try and kind of draw out what it is that makes Ghettoville unique? Yeah, I think he does something really interesting. Uh, I think the album does something really interesting with ideas of surveillance. So one way to, let's just say like uh, from the 1990s on was in a, in a city like London, what starts to happen is, you know, a changing of what someone like, Stuart Hall would have called in the 70s the colony culture, the, the particular uh, uh, or colony life that had developed in London in, in, in kind of concentrated areas of post-colonial settlement in the city. And in the 90s, that had started to change, you know, due to the very fact that populations change over time and also due to the, the reorganisation of the city. And you start to you know, have this development in surveillance, which changed the way policing works. You know, obviously, policing still works in its, in its overtly kind of violent um, and oppressive ways, but the, the nature of that violence and oppression shifts um, and is, takes on a particular technological manifestation through some various forms of surveillance activity. Um, and one way you could look at that is to say, is say, well, you know, that the the um, the means to survey people racialized as black or people seen as racialized people seen as threats to the social order um, in various forms is to see that as 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 a new form of kind of top down oppression, which um, flattens and stultifies the capacities of people to live. And that's, and again, going back to the urban sociology case, that's, that's a, in a sense, sense a, a perfectly legitimate set of claims to make. That stuff is real. You know, it does happen. What I was trying to get at with, what I think Getterville's kind of getting at is, is, it, is that it tries to both give a sense of what the grind of that form of surveillance feels like, but it also tries to show the persistence of, put it this way, that there wouldn't be need for surveillance if people didn't keep on evading and disrupting and uh, rendering surveillance unrecognisable, should we say, uh, and dysfunctional. And I think what actors are trying to do in Getterville is both give a, and simultaneously um, in the very textures of, of the music, give an account of what that experience of that type of stultifying kind of um, surveillance is like, but also what it is that, that keeps that surveillance trying to chase those forms of social life um, in the city. What it is that that means that, that that life is constantly escaping, reformulating, improvising in ways which 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 render surveillance kind of inoperable. 
And I think that's at the heart of the album. I think what he's saying here is that I think actually that, you know, I have a lot of respect for the, I wouldn't actually, a lot of the work I do in this book wouldn't be possible without me borrowing from the work of music journalists who go out and not only interview artists, but also, you know, responding to the music as it comes out. But often in the, in the immediate reviews of Actresses Getterville, there was a tendency to play up the, let's call it the dystopian dynamics of the album. And I just felt that was a little bit dissatisfying. If you listen to what he's saying, also, I think if you listen to what the album is is expressing and conveying, there's something else other than a flat, deadening dystopia. I mean, the very fact that the album exists tells you that there is not that this this is not a dystopia, a flat, deadened dystopia, right? The fact that it's made is already saying that it's challenging that that claim. Um, so I just wanted to kind of expand and develop that idea. Uh, and say, so what is it then in this album, which at points does sound quite bleak, but then in other moments it doesn't. Um, and one way I, I try to think about it was that, well, rather than thinking of, let's say, the tracks as distinct units, you could think of, let's say, a particular track, um, which has this kind of grinding, kind of uh, crushing churn to it, you could think about it as a zoomed-in moment of a, another particular track, which appears to have this lightness and freshness, right? So what he's done is taken a millisecond of of that 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 kind of track with a lighter feel and zoomed in on it, and amplified a particular millisecond, and you what you hear is this grind and and uh, and crush. Or you could flip that around the other way. That what that grind and crush as a kind of a wide panoramic view of a of a so-called dystopian landscape is if you zoom in on it. On a microsecond, you hear this kind of this, you know, that particular track, uh, "Don't," where you hear this voice, this this kind of computerized voice crying out, like "Don't stop the music." And I think if you listen to the album in that way, um, as this kind of almost like a a set of a refracted kind of hall of mirrors type proposition, um, rather than a strict narrative, uh, like cinematic uh, um, depiction of a landscape. I think it becomes more interesting. And and that bit of the chapter kind of points to maybe the, I suppose that sometimes the paucity of the tools that we have with which to speak about music because speaking about music's hard. And mm-hmm. the fact that there's a tendency towards the cinematic or the visual, um, which sometimes does a bit of a disservice to, to work like this. Um, and so then moving on to the chapter about grime, um, which is probably the most well-known of the three musics that you explore. Um, what do you mean when you say that antagonism is the primary mode of grime and it's a question of antagonisms plural? To be honest with you, I wasn't entirely sure. I was just trying to work out, like, once I'd written the bulk of the chapter, I was like, what is it that's going on here? What is it that that I'm trying to get at? And I guess, and I get to it at the end of the chapter, which I kind of, I leave it, I leave it quite open is to say, well, it seems to be that, that, that in some sense, grime is an understanding of grime is overdetermined through its relationship to policing and an idea of violence, right? That it seems to be that uh, grime is only is often only understood through its relationship to to a kind of warfare with the state. But by the same measure, you go, well, what would grime sound like if it didn't have that that um, warfare going on? Would grime still need to exist if it, there wasn't that type of of warfare going on, right? Uh, with a state apparatus looking to crush the very conditions that that make the music possible. So I guess I was trying to say that is that there seem, in one sense, that I always got the impression that um, despite the 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 writing and the thinking about grime, um, uh, that the artist didn't seem to didn't seem to. Like the state was an incidental factor, or the police were an incidental factor in their in their mu- music making, right? That it was something going on in the background. There was something else at work here. And I was guess I was trying to pose that question: Can we work? Is there something else at work here, or is it not? And if there is, what what possibly could what what could that possibly be? Uh, what is this other type of antagonism at work here? And I'm not saying I I, I come close to any answer. Um, I'm still like kind of puzzled myself. And I think that's actually what makes the music kind of um, fascinating and gives it that drive and that energy. You know, it's perfectly fine to listen to it through the through the lenses of kind of, in air quotes, resistance. But I think, again, that does the music a disservice if you only think about it in terms of the horrific things that st- the state has done to, um, 
young black people in in British cities since you know again the 90s onwards. Um, I think the music is about more than that. I, 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 I'm guessing. I mean, my intuition is the music is about, is about more than that. That might not be. That might be a, um, a failed intuition. But yeah, I was trying to unpack that and trying to see if it was possible to to separate the two out. And unfortunately, I don't. I'm not entirely sure if it is. Um, and what's interesting at, at present is that you know, grime has now been surpassed as the as the the cutting edge musical project of of young black people or young young people in 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 urban environments in Britain. It's drill now, and that kind of uh, chaining together of policing and music seems to be even more intense in the context of drill, um, which you know. Um, would be something worth thinking about. It was the grime chapter and then thinking about the context of drill as well, which made the the argument that you make throughout about kind of avoiding superficial realism or representational um, readings of, of these musics. You know, I think it is such a overwhelming in the kind of popular popular narratives to read to read grime as being in some ways hyper-representative. Um, so... Yeah, so I, I found that really interesting. Um, and then you, you talk specifically about kind of claustrophobia and localism and inequality as as being quite um, energising within this music. And you draw this out when you discuss the track Pow by Lethal Bizzle from 2004. And how does a tune like this not only kind of describe social circumstances of grime, but actually, in your words, you say it creates territory, which I thought was a, a neat phrase. Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's... It's compressed, compacted in 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 so many ways. There's so much piled into power that it's it seems like it's it's each time you hear it, you're like, how is it possible for this to function? How is it possible for this to exist? There's firstly like I think it might be like eight or nine MCs in the space of four minutes. Each are delivering a kind of each even on their own in their own particular moment of their eight bars of performance are delivering kind of like line after line of ammunition and the 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 rhythm itself is just this kind of i think you know um i think it's actually simon reynolds who i, I quote says it's kind of like a whirling mania i think that or something along those lines that he, he he says about the track that it's a kind of screaming kind of mania of a, a track that is just kind of wheeling uh um around and around in this 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 kind of screeching intensity and yeah i, th- I think if you if all this energy and all this population is it's it's so overpopulated um um power that it seems implicit in it it seems to be a demand for space right it seems to be a demand to go oh look we're going to um if you're going to compress us into a particular geography and not only after you compress us into a particular geography you're going to compress uh, our very movement and our ability to live together and um build lives together in this in this compacted territory is that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna compact this song with even more material than you can handle, and then implicit in that is that all the, it's gonna create so much pressure, so much overload that you're gonna have to give us some space, you're gonna have to give us some breathing room. I think that's what's at least that's what I try and suggest is that's what's at work in Pow. The way that the track seems to kind of burst at the seams um, is that it appears to try to be burst at the particular limits that. Um, are enforced on 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 those who are making the music. Well, colony culture is a term that comes up in Police in the Crisis, in uh, that Stuart Hall wrote with um, you know I, I, the, the names of everyone in that book. I think it's like Chaz Critcher and and it is a, a book that came out of the um, the uh, an early period of the Centre of Contemporary Cultural Studies. And what they're trying to do in that is give an account of of how in the context of a growing um, uh, state and police repression of of um, black communities in Britain. How those communities were seeking to, in that confined space, build uh, forms of uh, economic, social, cultural existence that were autonomous and independent of those set of restrictions. And then base culture is a term which comes from, or um, was coined by Lynn and Kwesi Johnson to describe the particular nature, the particular nature of the cultural activity that took place in those in those colony zones which is built around the, the culture of the sound system and built around the 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 particular say the the you know a scientific improvisation with the effects of bass lines on people um 
physically and psychically, you could say, um, um, through this idea of, you know, the dread of the music, the dread effect of, of bass music. And again, if you go back to the, the one of the earlier chapters where I say, you know, how techno and jungle were the kind of structural um, conditions, set, set up a set of structural, structural conditions, which then kind of are reformulated, played out in different ways in footwork, grime and the music of actress. One you could say in the particular case of grime is that uh, grime is using the the, um, the conditions of colony culture and base culture in new settings and new conditions, and it may not sound like it in the in the, in a, in an overt or obvious way, but if you start to think about it through those lenses, you can see a level of continuity and reworking continuity in a kind of the bits they've rejected and the bits they've taken on and, and developed. So you've been really generous with your time and we've covered some of the book, but I would say to listeners that, you know, if we've kind of scratched the surface here, it's got so much for quite a slim volume, it's got so much going on. So um, yeah, this, we've just kind of covered some of the basics here. I, I was going to ask, what would you say would be a few like key tracks or videos that anyone listening should check out to get a sense of any of these musics? Um, it's a good one, actually. Um for grime, I would say check out almost any pirate rip from like 2003 or 2002, 2000, between 2002 and 2004 by like Wiley, um, particularly the Wiley Sidewinder Sessions. They'd be a great place to start. They're kind of almost, you could argue in some sense, the, the, the one of the birth points of grime. With Actress, I mean, there's a set of albums out there. You can, I, I, would, I think a, a good way into Actress is the album Splash. Uh, where the the second um, S is spelt with a Z, and with footwork uh, again, that's tough. I would, I would say go for um, uh, DJ Rashad's "Just a Taste" Volume One. I think a, a mixtape that he put out um, when he was he's kind of coming into prominence as a as a footwork producer and DJ in Chicago. They be they be good starting points. I think great. Um, I'll try and remember to put them in the show notes for any listeners. And then finally, what are you working on now? Um, uh, don't know. <laughs> um, uh, let me think. Let me think. Um, well, you know, we just had uh, 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 a child arrive in our lives, so at the moment, that's I'm working on that at the moment, or trying to trying to work on that, or help my partner work on that. But yeah, I'm I'm at present. Um, I, I I'm trying to work more. I'm trying to get out of the single authored stuff or stuff I write on my own. Um, and really the, the book to call it, uh, something that's, you know, I, I take claim for all the faults in it, but anything that's, that's good in the book is really out of a result of conversations and friendships with, uh, with several people. And so I, I'm, I'm trying as much as possible. I'm pretty determined as much as possible to, to work collectively or with other people as much as, as much as I can in anything I, um, put out there research-wise. Um, and so what I'm doing at present is um, there's a book that myself and um, a former colleague from Goldsmiths, Luis Moreno, have been working on for a while. It looks at three cities, really, I say, um, in the 1970s, um, early 1980s, uh, Kingston in Jamaica, Detroit, and New York. And what we're interested in is how in the 19, in the, in the, there's a period in the 70s where each of those cities appears to become critical to uh, this uh, various crises in capitalism going on at the moment, at that particular moment in time. But at the very same time, it, uh, what arises in those cities are really kind of speculative projects of, of black musical experimentation. In the case of Kingston, it's, it's dub. Um, in the case of Detroit, um, there's funk, the P-Funk project. And in New York, you get the invention of hip hop. Um, and so we're working on something like that, like trying to basically trying to rethink a kind of a set of arguments about the political economy of the 70s through those musical projects. With Ash Sharma, another friend, um, good friend, um, we a couple of years ago, we published uh, an article which kind of looked back at the... Um, Black, uh, the Black British Cultural Studies Project in New Formations and kind of try to do a, a survey of that work and kind of construct a kind of inter an, an intellectual narrative about how Black British Cultural Studies came into came into into being. Um, 
and then situate that work within the contemporary context. And we're, I think we're going to start work, start on a, a follow-up article of sorts, which which takes as a starting point the Steve McQueen, Steve Small Axe series. And finally, I mean, it's something I'm trying to talk about as much as possible in public, so it kind of um, forces me to get it get it started. Is um, is for a long time, and I've uh, during lockdown, during that kind of pause in you know time, space, everything that happened in lockdown for a short period before things started to somehow get back into motion again, despite still being under lockdown conditions. I've been wanting to, to, to um, put something together on Gil Scott Heron. And so I've, I've got a notebook going um, and I scribble down anything that, that comes to mind or um, when I have a, a moment or two. So that might be much longer, uh, uh, a longer term project. You know, it might never appear. It might appear in different guises, but yeah, that's kind of what I'm up to at the moment, um, besides, you know, the usual of teaching and trying to ensure that, you know, people get fair pay and pensions for the work they do um, under the guise of, you know, uh, under these conditions of oppressive employment that we have in universities at the moment. Well, all of that plus a young baby sounds like quite a lot to be getting on with. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Easy yeah. Thanks very much for your time and thanks for coming on the show. No worries, Gamo. Thanks a lot.